Thanks for tuning in to our Cypress Church podcast. To learn more about our church, visit our website at cypresschurch.net and join us for our Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. Subscribe on iTunes for more. Well, good morning, Cypress Church. It is good to be with you again on this beautiful last day of June. I'm uh, Steve Ellis. For those that don't know me, I'm one of the recycled elders here at Cypress Church. (laughs) Pastor Mike is here this morning for those of us with separation anxiety. He's not far away, but I have the privilege of sharing the scriptures with us this morning. Yeah, I I feel like after the worship and that video, we could just pray and be dismissed, right? (laughs) What a great morning. But we are in the third week of our series called summer mixtape. It's a survey through some of the greatest songs of Scripture from the Psalms. And if you were here on Father's Day, Terry Lambert kicked us off in Psalm 78 with the challenge to show up. He talked about the importance of being present in the moment. I mean, we've all heard the old adage that a lot more is caught than taught, right? And last week, Pastor Mike took a dive through one of his favorite psalms. He quotes it every week. Psalm 139. Reminding us how intentional God is in our lives and and how intimately he knows us. And in keeping with the mixtape theme, Terry began his message with music from the Beatles and the Beach Boys. You remember? And last week, Mike actually broke out in a little pastoral boogie up here to the theme from Rocky, which, by the way, we learned was the song his high school water polo team warmed up to in their Speedos in the locker room before every match. And and I know he told us not to take that mental imagery too far, but I couldn't help myself. Could you? So with the 4th of July this week, I just thought, you know, maybe, maybe we could get Pastor Mike to do a little reprise. What do you think? Are you feeling it? That could go viral, I think. I, I, I really do. Uh, maybe that's not such a good idea. They're never going to look at you the same way. (laughs) But, you know, Mike and Terry kind of put the pressure on, because when I was assigned a week in this series, I I didn't realize I was going to have to come up with some oldie for the mixtape theme. But I I thought about it this week, and in a moment of divine inspiration, it came to me. It's 4th of July. Backyard summer barbecues, hamburgers, hot dogs, cheeseburgers. So, here's my mixtape song. You know it? Tried to amend my carnivorous habits. Made it nearly seven to eight. Losing weight without speed, eating sunflower seeds. Drinking lots of carrot juice and soaking up rays. But at night I'd have these wonderful dreams. Some kind of sensuous treat Not zucchini, fettuccine, or burger wheat But a big warm bun and a huge tongue of meat 
admit it. I'm hungry. No, I, I'm a degenerate parrot head. And I know, you know, in this intensely PC culture, we're supposed to be eating fish and veggies. And uh, Chick-fil-A tells us all the time, you know, eat more chicken, right? And maybe it's the caveman in me coming out, but the way I look at it, if God had not intended us to eat cows, he wouldn't have made them out of steak. Am I right? So men, on this 4th of July holiday, when you're breaking out that grill for that rack of ribs, or that marinated grilled flank steak, or that quarter pounder with cheese, I just want you to know, you have been set free from the law of fish and chicken. <laughs> Go forth and grill without guilt. Can I get an amen? All right. All right, now we need to get a little serious. Our, uh, our song this morning is from the Psalms, Psalm 51. Most of us are probably not all that familiar with the words of this psalm. It's not like one of the famous ones, like the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, or, or Psalm 100, you know, make a no- joyful noise unto the Lord, or, or even Psalm 119, thy word is a, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But I would, I would venture to guess that most of us are familiar with the events out of which this psalm arises. It is David's lament, song of confession, the pouring out of his heart, repentance, after being confronted by the prophet Nathan over his betrayals in the matter of Bathsheba and Uriah. But before we get into the text, let's just have a word of prayer and ask God to bless. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for the reality of your boundless grace, how deep your love for us is. And Lord, as we look into your word and we learn from from David and from you, Father, just we ask that you would guide our thoughts and direct our hearts. Point us to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, in your worship folder, there's an outline if you want to take it out and follow along. And for those of you who, who don't ha- have a Bible with you and you'd like one to follow along some of the scriptures, most of them will be up on the screen, but the, the ushers will be coming down the aisles. You can just slip your hand up and they'll give you a loaner. You can just leave it on the chair when you're done. The events that give rise to Psalm 51 are recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 1 begins, it happened in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and the army, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Should have been with his men. There's an added morale when the leader is out front. How many great stories of heroism have been inspired by great leaders, you know, for the king. But instead of leading the army, David is loitering one evening on the roof of the palace. He sees a woman bathing. She's beautiful. And David's passions are aroused. The woman turns out to be Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. 
one of his inner circle, a group of about 30 elite warriors who had been with David when he was pursued by Saul and through his battles with the Philistines and other conquests. They were his knights of the round table, the Delta Force. And their exploits are listed in 2 Samuel 23 and, and 1 Chronicles 11, men of courage and valor and integrity. So I suspect David and Bathsheba knew each other. They had likely interacted before, possibly at palace gatherings, festivals. But whether this was a spontaneous or an orchestrated encounter doesn't really matter. It's adultery. David summons her. They sleep together. She ends up pregnant. She gives David the news. David has a problem, but he comes up with a plan. He sends for Uriah under the pretense of wanting a a report from the front lines. Uriah comes to Jerusalem and gives the report, and David says, well done, you know, it's, it's, it's late, go Go home, spend some time with your family. David, implication is obvious. He needs Uriah to have relations with his wife so he can cover his tracks. But Uriah doesn't go home. Instead, for two nights straight, he sleeps in the servants' quarters at the door of the palace. Even after David gets him drunk, He says, my men are sleeping in the open under threat of constant attack. Shall I then go home and have a feast and lie with my wife? I won't do it. Such was the devotion of this man. So David calls in a scribe, pens a letter to Joab. The commander tells him, in the next engagement, put Uriah in the front line where you know the enemy's fighters are the fiercest. And once the battle is joined, draw the rest of the troops back so that Uriah will be overwhelmed by the enemy. David seals the letter, calls in Uriah, tells him it's time to go back to the front, and hands him the sealed communique to deliver. David has Uriah unknowingly hand deliver his own death warrant. Who does that? First having taken his wife, David takes his life. Joab does as instructed. Uriah dies a hero. Problem solved, right? Oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. One lie leads to another, then a cover-up, until it all comes crashing down. It did for David. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Galatians 6, 7. Whatsoever a man sows, so shall he also reap. And in chapter 12, the next chapter, David gets a visit from Nathan the prophet. It tells him a story about a rich man who had many flocks and herds of sheep and a poor man who had one single lamb. He purchased this lamb for his family. It it grew up with his children. They'd fed it by hand and it had laid in their laps. It was like one of the family. 
And the rich man hosts a traveler, and not wanting to take a, a lamb from his own flock, he, he takes the only lamb of this poor man and slaughters it to feed the traveler. And David is incensed by this story. How dare him? He, that man should die, David declares. Nathan looks him in the eye and says, you're that man. And immediately, David repents. I have sinned against the Lord. Verse 13. And with a broken and contrite heart, David pens the words of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, 6. 1 through 6. The first six verses go like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in my sin did my mother conceive me. But you delight in truth in the inward being and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. David says in verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, the, the human race has a problem. Just take a look around. You can get all the self-help books you want. You might even improve your behavior for a while. But the problem remains. Romans 3.23 tells us clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that, that is a gap that is so wide it is beyond description. We, we are not fine people who just need to be made a little finer. You know, just, just a little polishing, buffing around the edges. You know, the truth is, our hearts are rebellious. You and I... We are sinners, separated from a holy God because of our rebellious hearts. And the first step in doing business with God is to come clean, to acknowledge the brokenness. Notice what David says here in verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. You know, honesty has a way of sobering us up, doesn't it? When we recognize who we really are and, and we understand who God is, holy and righteous, it's a wake-up call. should be. And if we are going to do business with God, true confession, true repentance requires complete honesty. All truth is God's truth. And, you know, even in the secular world, professionals will tell us that the first step to healing and restoration is transparency. When a relationship is fractured, the first step to restoration is to come clean. And that's, you know, sometimes hard for us, I know, because we are the masters of the yeah, but. We are. Yeah, but, yeah, I know, but, yeah, but, you know, I, I needed that. Yeah, but, 
I couldn't help it. Yeah, but, you know, I've worked so hard. I, I, I kind of deserve this. I, yeah, but, you know, they kind of deserve this. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Yeah, but just holds you back. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we just deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we stand before an almighty and righteous God, there ain't going to be any. Yeah, but it's not going to happen. And notice in Psalm 51, there is, there is no attempt by David here to rationalize. No excuses. Just fix me, please. The second part of Psalm 51.6 says, And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Who doesn't want the right perspective on things? In the Bible book of Proverbs, written by the wisest man who ever lives, he tells us right up front, here's where you start. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If I want to know how to get my head on straight, I need a healthy reverence for my Creator. Notice what this verse does not say. It does not say the grace of God is the beginning of wisdom. It does not say the the mercy of God is the beginning of wisdom. Lots of wonderful verses in Scripture about the, the vast mercy and grace of God. But that is not the beginning of wisdom. That's the relief that comes later as we learn. Wisdom, a correct viewpoint, begins with the fear of the Lord, a reverential awe. The Apostle Paul got a glimpse in Acts chapter 9, and it left him face down in the dust on the Damascus Road, and all he could say was, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Apostle John got a glimpse, glimpse in the first chapter of Revelation. He has a vision of the glorified Christ. And in verse 12, he says, I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. I turned to see the voice. And in the midst of seven golden lampstands, he says, I see, I saw one like unto the Son of Man. And you can almost hear John saying, you know, I, I walked with him. For three years, I ate with him. I I laid my head on his chest. And this one was like him, but oh, so much more. He says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. We sing the song, you have no rival. You have no equal. Yours is the name above all names. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because it is only when you begin to appreciate the absolute majesty of Almighty God that you can really understand in doing business with God, His grace 
It's a gift. Absolutely. You, you can't earn it. I mean, we know the verses. John 3.16. For he so loved the world, he, he gave his only begotten son. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the, the gift of God is eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let's think of that for just a second. Reflect on, on that. Because I do think in this culture sometimes it is, it is hard for us to really take in what that means. In my observation, we, we struggle between two areas. Either we have a, a hard time accepting the reality that the grace of God really is a free gift, that it could actually apply to us. Or our mind takes us in the other direction and tries to convince us that, hey, the rules don't apply to us anymore, right? Because it's all covered by grace. Neither one is healthy. We think we all know a gift when we see it, right? But do we really? I mean, in America, we, we were, this country was built on rugged individualism. I mean, you, you earn it. There's no free lunch. We, um, we give gifts at, at, at Christmas time. Well, actually, we, we exchange gifts. So if we're exchanging, that's really not a gift, is it? That's a That's a trade. And you know it is because what are you thinking about when you're going Christmas shopping? Ah, oh, what did they get me last year? Ah, oh, okay. I mean, I, I got to go at least that big, right? What about birthdays? We just had Father's Day presents. Are those gifts? Sort of. But what if your birthday came and went and you didn't get anything? You might not say anything, but privately, you'd be a little miffed, wouldn't you? I mean, because after all, we, we deserve it, don't we? I mean, come on, give me some credit. Earlier this month, we celebrated all around the world the 75th anniversary of D-Day, the Normandy invasion that started the liberation of France and the end of the Second World War. And probably the best film on that subject matter is Saving Private Ryan. I don't know if you've seen it. I would, not to be a spoiler, but it came out in 1998, before some of you were even born, probably. But it, uh, the film opens to the sound of waves crashing on the sand. It's 0600, Dog Green Sector, Omaha Beach. The first 25 minutes of that film are hard to watch. It's been described by many of some of the most realistic depictions of combat ever put on film. The story is about Captain Thomas H. Miller, played by Tom Hanks, who is tasked in the days after the invasion of putting a squad together to go find one Private James Francis Ryan, who is missing in action behind enemy lines as part of the 101st Airborne drops on D-Day. James Ryan is the last survivor from a family of four brothers. The other three have died in combat. Captain Miller is to find him, send him home. 
And so over the course of the film, one by one, the members of that squad give their lives in that endeavor. They finally find him with a group of soldiers guarding a bridge. And in the climactic battle, as they are gradually being overrun by advanced elements of a German armored division, the, the last handful of men fall back across the bridge. And in the process of trying to blow the bridge so the Germans can't come across, Captain Miller is mortally wounded. Reinforcements arrive, blunt the German advance, but Captain Miller is dying. And Private Ryan kneels beside him. And Captain Miller reaches out and grabs his jacket, pulls him close, and whispers his final words. Earn this, James. Earn it. And Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon, stands up, looks at the body of Captain Miller, and you can see the, the overwhelming power of the overwhelming reality of that sacrifice begins to dawn on him, and the, the screen fades to the face of a 70-ish man standing in front of a white cross, in a sea of white crosses in the colville Sumer Cemetery in France. On the cross is inscribed Captain Thomas H. Miller and the, the older Private Ryan speaks for the first time in the film as he's looking down at this cross. He says, every day of my life I've thought about what you said on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I, I hope it was enough. It's a heartbreaking scene because you can, you can just feel the enormity of the weight of the burden that man carried. Did I measure up? Was I, was I good enough? I am so very glad that the last words of my Lord on that cross were not earn this. Earn it. The last words of my Lord on that cross were to Telestai. It is finished. Paid in full. The word that in the business transactions of the day would be stamped on a receipt or a contract to signify that the last obligation had been fulfilled. There was nothing else due. Paid in full. There is no conceivable way for us to earn it. That is a burden we cannot and should not try to carry. And when we read through Psalms 51, notice David never once says, God, help me earn your favor. Help me make this right somehow. No, he, he prays this. Wash me. Cleanse me, Lord. Blot out my sins. Give me a clean heart. Deliver me from my guilt. Restore me. Sustain me. You do it. Nothing about, help me pay this back somehow. Because David, I believe, understands the absolute futility of such a request. You look at verses 16 and 17. God isn't looking for sacrifices. A broken and contrite heart. Repentance. 
It is nonsense to think that there is anything we can do to earn our redemption. And yet, there's whole religions built on that concept. Reincarnation. Purgatory. The notion that you can somehow go somewhere or, or come back somehow and suffer for a little while and, and pay for your sins is a lie. Without the blood of Christ covering our sins, separation is eternal. And all we do is receive the gift for whosoever believes in his name. Whoever trusts in that work shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It is the work of Christ alone. It is the cross plus nothing. That is the good news. But what of the other side of the coin? I mean, we know by no works of the law shall any flesh be justified. Romans 3.20 tells us that. But does that mean the, the rules no longer matter for us? Of course not. The law of God is a collection of principles for fully enjoying life, not a set of rules to make us miserable. Think of it as God saying, here's how you prosper. In simple terms, following his way is how we thrive. It's what we were made for. God's word helps us better understand the God that loves me, his character, what pleases him, and in doing the things that please him. That is not only for my benefit. It's also a way of saying, thank you for rescuing me. We all know sin is destructive. It was for David. David's family was never the same that event. The child born to David and Bathsheba died in infancy. There was incest between David's son Ammon and his daughter Tamar. Ammon is killed by David's son Absalom, his brother. David's son Absalom leads an open revolt against his father and is killed in the rebellion. Nathan told him, the sword will never depart from your house. And it didn't. I'll never forget what Pastor Justin said a few years ago. You can choose your sin, but you can't choose your consequences. But as a testament to God's boundless grace, the second child of David and Bathsheba will become one of the wisest and richest men that ever walked the earth, who writes the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, builds the temple in Jerusalem, King Solomon. Sin leaves scars, to be sure. Those events left a stain on David's life. David is still described as a man after God's own heart, but in 1 Kings 15.5, it says of him, he was a man who did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Sin leaves scars. We all have them. And they're on both sides, front and back. Because sometimes we're David. And sometimes we're Uriah. In a gathering this large, I, 
I have no doubt that some of us here have suffered loss because of the actions of someone they trusted. And it's hard to get past it. I know. But eventually we have to come face to face with the cross and realize he took it all on himself. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. When he hung on the cross, Jesus bore the burden. He bore the shame. He bore the punishment of every last evil, despicable deed. You know how we feel when we've done something we know we shouldn't have? Tell our wife we went somewhere when we were somewhere else. Not that I've ever done that, just speaking purely hypothetically. But you, you want to come clean. You, you, and that's just little things. Multiply that by millions of times throughout the centuries. The weight of that shame, of our sin, was on him. And he hung there until it was finished. No, no wonder he sweat blood in the garden. Every last evil, despicable deed, every one. But some of us still carry the burden of trying to earn it. Somehow trying to measure up. Some of us still carry the burden of some unspeakable thing done by someone we trusted. The Lord is still declaring to us today, it is finished, paid for. We can put that burden down. You can. Ephesians 4.32, and I'll close with this. Let us be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This Thursday, we're going to celebrate the anniversary of freedom of this country. Great, a great holiday. Lots of cheeseburgers, I hope. But we have an even bigger celebration, an even greater freedom from the law of sin and death. For the one whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. There's healing in Christ. In a few moments, we're going to have a, a time of reflection as the elders and the prayer team members are going to come up, up front here. And if you're carrying a burden this morning, if you've got to do business with God, I'd invite you to start the healing process today. If you're bearing the weight of trying to earn it, if you're bearing the burden of some injustice, God is waiting. Confession, acknowledgement is the first step to healing and restoration. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for these words. Lord, I hope that you speak to our hearts. Search me and know me.
said David. And that, that's my prayer this morning, Lord. If there be any wayward place in my heart, Father, help me deal with that this morning. Thank you for paying it all in full. In your name and for your glory we pray. In Jesus' name.